interesting. <laughs> this is Joshua Bell in the Kilt and the Cloth. I'm continuing my Tuesday morning Bible study, and we're beginning with a really cool discussion about biblical texts, non-biblical texts, and how they all affect our faith. And part of the discussion was, before I accidentally forgot to not record, was the fact that <clears throat> uh, the, there's a, an addendum to the Hebrew Bible called the Talmud, and another one called the Mishnah and the Mishnah in the Jewish faith. And the Talmud goes into a lot of detail, or Talmud goes into a lot of detail uh, about stories that we, we just have a, an open-ended ending on. And, and so, for example, that we talked about the story of Esau. Well, I'm going to pick up from where we just left off and push record. <clears throat> so another thing that happens historically when we talk about biblical texts is the Hebrew culture never would have put together the order of the Hebrew Bible the way we did. Uh, you, you all have, it begins with Genesis and it ends with Malachi. For them, that's not the way that they read text. So what you want to think about in the Hebrew world is, is they had a whole bunch of texts in a room, scrolls. And depending on the season of the year, depending on which scroll you pulled down to read, not, not in a certain order, right? Just this is, okay, well, it's this time of year. Uh, it's getting close to Pesach. So we want to talk about Passover. So let's pull out Torah. Where do we get Pesach? Well, we get it from Exodus. Um, in the, in, in the interesting thing is Exodus, for example, is a Greek term. It's not a Hebrew term. Uh, the Hebrew word for the book, uh, Exodus, is something to the effect of Sefer Ve'ekela, Shemot, which means the book of. That's it. It has no name. So in the, in the Hebrew world, when we're talking about texts, they never stopped. Christianity does. We write 67 books and we, we stop within 200 years. In the Hebrew world, they started writing for 2,000 years and then kept writing after the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple, which is why it's complicated for us. We In our world, uh, Jesus came, he died, he resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and now we're left with the, the chaos, right? In the Hebrew world, the chaos has always been here. The trick is, is how do we live within it? So that's where the Talmud comes in. Talmud comes in and says, in today's world, what if Esau had, had done this? Because that would have been his right. He would have had every right to come to Jacob's funeral and say, no, he can't be buried here. This is my land. At that moment. Because uh, that's what they did as a culture. So the Talmud says, well, look at Esau. He's, he could totally argue with Jacob and, and do this. And Joseph, his son, Jacob's son, right, has now has the opportunity, Israel, Jacob slash Israel now has the opportunity to say, nope, this, you gave away your birthright. And not only did you give away your birthright, you also gave him the land. You cannot break promises that were made in the eyes of God. 
there's the Talmud answer. And we have a legal document. And we have a legal document. The Hebrew Bible that you that we have in our Bibles is not concerned with that. It's older text. They haven't even thought about it. They're like, no, Esau's he's not a part of the story. Because what's the story? It's about hmm? to get to Moses. Gotta get to Moses. <laughs> and in order for us to do that, Israel, aka Jacob, has to get to Egypt. And if they if they're all in Egypt, then we gotta talk about well, how did they get enslaved? Right. So and, and the Talmud does a really good job with explaining how that all happens. But let me give you a great example. Billy was getting ready to say, and it talks about Moses' stutter. Right. Not in the Hebrew Bible. No. But in the Talmud, it does. But most of us grew up in the Christian faith knowing that Moses had a stutter. Which is why he wants other people to speak on his behalf. Well, and we just thought he had it from birth. Yeah. That's right. We nope. didn't know. That's right. And now, so, I don't know if this is true or not, but that's what it says. Well, I would say that one of the cool things about reading this, Billy, is this, it challenges our faith to give us an opportunity to not be stagnant in it. Right? It doesn't say, um, we just all have always assumed that he had a stutter. Well, let's go back to Noah. How do you know he was an alcoholic? I didn't know he was. You, you didn't? <laughs> he built a big boat. It <laughs> was boat. really a big boat. So. <laughs> he, could, he could have been sober all the time. <laughs> That's why the people around him. <laughs> sure. The very first thing he does when he builds the, the, the land is, is he builds a vineyard and gets drunk to himself. It's literally what oh. it says in the, in the Bible. And the Talmud doesn't talk about Noah drinking very much. But in our Bible, it does. Hmm. Right? Moses has a stutter. Moses has a stutter. He, he, but we don't know why. The Talmud answers why. Uh, we don't know what Moses really looks like. We didn't really know what Joseph looked like. We just knew he was handsome, they were handsome. and good looking. Right? Both of them were handsome. How do we get that? Well, our Hebrew Bible says so, but the Talmud makes it even deeper. You see, it becomes an addendum. So you could read both of them side by side. The story, the story, the main part of the story does not change. The characters might change, but the story itself doesn't. And remember, what's the big narrative for the whole Hebrew Bible that God Yes, we got it. But there's just so many things that that I, I have never heard before that I've read in here. Mm -hmm. Moses was king. Uh, for, for a period, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's not in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't change anything. No. Other than that part of it was really didn't make sense. And I then didn't. he resigned. He quit. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't have, he was voted in instead of having the rights. According to the I Talmud. Mean, yeah. Yeah. So this is, these, these are good to put next to each other. But when, when we're here, the hardest part's going to be to say, okay, so where did this idea come from? One of the things that we know um, that really becomes a problem. It's right before the Shem and Ham 
am coming and seeing him. So uh, one, of, one of the things that becomes hard is, is that when we talk about Exodus, it's broke down into basically four parts. Um, and they were not always written at the same time. They were written in such a way that over, over a period of time, the, the, they wanted to come back and answer some questions. So the first thing they have to answer, in, in if we're breaking down Exodus, the four parts, is the enslavement. Um, and then eventually the liberation of the people. So that's part number one, uh, enslavement and, and liberation. The second part of that of Exodus is that they now they've got to they've got to travel. We got to leave. Um, the Septuagint gives us the name Exodus, which is the Greek translation into English. And Exodus literally means to to leave, uh, to depart from Egypt. It's not really from Egypt. It's just to to depart. So um, there's some really interesting things that come from that. So if we if we're liberated, how do we get liberated? Well, obviously that's from the power of God who never breaks promises. And then the second part of that needs to be, we are now freed. Then the third part of that becomes this covenant. So now the original promise was, I will make of you a great nation. We haven't become a nation yet, right? So that's kind of happened in Exodus. Um, and then on top of this, he's going to add to the covenant. He's going to say, and then not only are you going to have a great nation, I'm going to lead you to a promised place that I have designed specifically for you. So there's this beautiful conversation that happens with Exodus, and the Talmud does a great job talking about it, but it's uh, it adds to the story, you know. So which is good. Um, think of think of it when we're reading these together. Is the the Torah or the ancient text that we read? is more like the outline. And then the Talmud is the spaces in between, if that helps. Okay, okay. That would be easier. And then the fourth one is, is that the, we've, now that we've done all of these things, we've uh, been free, we've been enslaved, now we've been liberated, now we've uh, traveled in the wilderness, God has made a new covenant with us, uh, which is the word berit. Uh, once we've done this, we've now come to a place of worship. And so we've got to create a place of worship. So that becomes the goal for Exodus. So now that we've got to Moses, Moses now has to create, or the story has to create, what is this creator? Right? So it's gotta, it's gotta make the power known. We've seen the human side now. Genesis. Now we have to see the God side. And this is this is a this that was a very loose way of saying that, but uh, just a little history because uh, you know this is what I do every time we introduce a new book. Um, we don't know when this took place. Uh, I want to I want to be very blunt and honest with you. If you hear some people say that it took place in such and such date at such and such time. They're reading from an old text, an old book that gave them all these answers. Somebody wrote an introduction to the Old Testament book, and they, they put all these dates in there, but those were always guesses, always. Um, I, I love you all enough to sit there and say that we don't know when any of the books were actually written. We have best guesses. 
here's some of the things that we can lean towards. We always tend to think there's one Pharaoh in the Egyptian world. Like there was one, one Pharaoh. No, no, there are multiple. And there were multiple lands. We know that the, the Pharaohs had different names because the names of the places were the names of the Pharaohs. For example, there's a place called Ramesses. Uh, and then there's a place called, hang on, let me get it. Uh, oh, it didn't matter. There was a place called Ramesses. Uh, and we know that there was a Pharaoh by that same name. At least one. At least one. Yeah, well, we, know, we know for sure there were two. Okay. Um, but the, the first one, he was really interested in building empire. So he had a lot of territory. Just so happened his territory was on the Nile River. See how this starts to go? And well, he, that, is, that isn't the one that was the son of the Pharaoh that the daughter saved Moses. That, no, this his, would be his, the dad. The dad of the person that we're getting ready to talk about. Okay, okay. Yeah. So so there's there's a there's a the first who had a whole bunch of land and especially around the Nile River. Now remember, it's all desert here. So whoever owns the land next to the water is extremely wealthy. Uh, and Egyptians cared more about deeds than nomadic tribes. So they had parcels of land and documentation that said, this is where we live. Um, we don't know exactly where that is. We kind of have an idea. Uh, we know where Ramesses II's tomb is, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where he lived. So I want to make sure I say this because there's this great movie called The Prince of Egypt that was put together by a lot of biblical scholars. And it was really, really good. And then right off the bat, the one thing that made me angry at the very beginning is they said, this is when it happened. Well, it ruined it. But everything else in the movie is wonderful. I just love the idea, the imagery. It's just, it's beautiful. But right off the bat, you got to be careful when you say Book of Exodus was written at such and such time. I'm giving you the basics. It's right. It, 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 we have no idea. It just so happens there was a Ramesses who had uh, a relative named Tut Moses. Uh, Moses itself is an Egyptian name, not Hebrew. Um, it's really important to recognize that. Uh, his, his name, I'm trying, I gotta remember where I specifically important was his name was Egyptian but oh yeah that this this idea was that if he's Egyptian then we've got to talk about how this Hebrew then becomes adopted by the Egyptian world and there happens to be a Remesis II and a Menenoptera was his real his real name and his stepbrother took Moses which Menenoptera ends up becoming Ramesses II, which is where everybody gets the idea. There's where he was born. Okay, so now the sad part of the story. Archaeologically, anthropologically, we have no proof that hundreds of thousands of Hebrew slaves ever left Egypt in a mass exodus. I want to be very careful how I say that. We have had proof that if you go to the Red Sea, you find Egyptian chariots at the bottom of the sea, all three of them. 
<laughs> we have found three chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea, uh, next to the boat that was carrying them across the Red Sea. Does it change the story? No, because it, we're not here to prove fact. We're here to prove that God doesn't break promises. So if God says he's going to get the people out of Egypt, then God's going to get the people out of Egypt. And our story is pretty fantastic. The one in the Talmud is even more fantastic. But at the, at the end of the day, they were trying to prove their faith. That's what we do in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, it, we, we, there, there are millions, if not billions of dollars being spent right now trying to prove that Torah actually existed. Like, here's the ark of the covenant. Here's the Noah's ark. Here's the proof that this happened. Here's Esau's head. You know what I mean? Like this, I mean, the one that blows me away is Goliath's head. Everybody's still searching for Goliath's head. And you're like, you know, the, the, it deteriorated long before. I know. Wait, come on, people. This is, this is, this is, but there are millions of billions of dollars being trying to find proof. And all the while, the people that live there are going, yeah, sure, we'll take your money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, same way we would. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember, in Kiefner, we have Kiefner, Oklahoma. There's what we call the Kiefner runestone. Yes. That for a, a time, we said archaeologically, that this proved that Vikings came all the way to Oklahoma before Columbus. Right? Do you all remember this? Mm -hmm. Uh if that's true, great. If not, the symbols look really Native American at the same time. But does it does it change the story? No. All we know is, is that there's this runestone in Edener, Oklahoma, that was not written or drawn by any of us. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? So it's really important that when we read Exodus, that we listen to the story more than trying to prove, okay, this happened at this certain time. It's really hard for us to do that today, especially because uh, we're so used to proving stuff. When we read Exodus, it's really important that we, we don't try to prove it. The last thing I want to say about Exodus before we really start reading it is it creates two massive festivals for the Hebrew culture. Now, for Christians, we have appropriated and used what we call liturgical seasons ever since we became an institution. Liturgical seasons are designed specifically to help churches stay focused. Okay, so if this is the time of Advent, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to focus in on the, the birth, of birth of Christ. If it's Epiphany, we're going to focus in on the, wise men. on the wise men. If it's Lent, we're going to focus in on Christ dead, Christ dead and, and the resurrection, right? If it's Pentecost, we're going to focus in on the beginning of the church. The beginning yeah. of the church. And then my favorite the tongues, tongues of fire, you know, yeah. because there's fire. You know? And then, and then as, as we always find in it, we call it the ordinary time. And it's, it's the, in the preacher stole world, the most boring time of the year, because we only get to wear green. So you have to wear green for like forever. But those liturgical seasons were designed so that we can stay focused. And then where does that come from? Hebrew world. Book of Exodus creates what we know as Pesach. You all know it as Passover. And you all remember most of the time that that, what is Passover? Let's just talk about that, by the way. 
was the angel of death passed over the houses where there was blood on the door. What kind of blood? The lamb's blood. Lamb's blood. blood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and uh, why was that happening? It was the tenth plague, yeah. right? And the worst one. And the worst thing, yes. I mean, they had been through the a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, the firstborn of every, yeah. every firstborn of every household. That's all right. They were children. Firstborn of every child. Yeah. And, and, and every beast. That's right. And every beast. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, and it's important to remember that there's gonna be this real strong need to begin at the beginning and to connect it to the end. So right off the beginning of the book of Exodus, you have this massive slaughtering of children. We call it the slaughtering of innocents. And the Pharaoh who does not know Joseph and dot, dot, dot. And he kills all the firstborn uh, men in the households because we don't want to build an army. So he leaves all the women alone, but we kill all the firstborn men because, you know. And we kill all the men, period, at this point. That's right. And then we don't have to worry about it which is what happens, why Moses has to leave. And then at the end of the story, right, the 10th plague then repays an eye for an eye. It's a different <laughs> concept. This is not Genesis. You see where I'm coming from? This is, this is where you get the phrase wrathful God. Uh, it's, it, but it's not a wrathful God. It's that God doesn't break promises. And God told Pharaoh through Moses that if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Problem with this as Christians is what? Thou shalt not kill. Number one, thou shalt not <laughs> kill. Number two. <clears throat> we don't see God as being wrathful. Sure. He's more, he's a loving God rather than a Revengeful God. That's right. Though he does say revenge. Uh, revenge is mine, I will repay. That's right. He, he says that in Exodus. Oh, okay. And and why is, and why does that happen? No, no, no forms of grace have been created. This ah. is the problem. The Hebrew world doesn't get grace. Even today. That's why we struggle with it. That's why we struggle with why uh, the, the conversation of the Jewish world today. Well, when, when you want grace, well, they don't know what that means. In this place, God should give mercy. So even, even those that not, might be trying, uh, no, not in this story. So that's, that's another disconnect for us a lot of times when it comes to Exodus. This is that we have to remember that... This is ancient medieval, even before medieval, but you want to think primeval faith <laughs> understandings that God has not grown yet. That's the way my, uh, I have heard professors say, I have to be careful I say that, I have heard professors say that one of the beautiful parts about Torah is, is as the humans are growing alongside the creator, the creator is growing alongside the humans. And that's where we get a grace. Okay. So there's no grace here. Well, to, now I'm sitting here thinking, I I feel like we have grace because of Jesus. That's exactly what he gave right. To us, yeah. God gave us grace. Then after Jesus, 
-hmm. It's gone. And and they did not have that in the Old Testament in the no. early times. And that, and that's and that's part of the problem. So when we when we talk about Exodus, we start to get a real black and white God. There's no gray areas very much. Um, and when we get to the New Testament, Jesus creates the gray where the world has never had that. This is a problem for that culture. And frankly, for us too. We we like we like black and white. Now, when, when Jesus says to love your enemy, uh, we don't want to do that. None of us do. You should pray for your enemies. I don't want to pray for my I'll pray for their souls. No, no. Pray for their enemies. You pray for them as if you pray for your own family. This the, Jesus creates gray. Exodus has no gray. It's very black and white. And that's another thing that I have to prepare you for. Because as we read this, it's it's also fast. Because uh, we're, we're going to read chapter 1 today before we leave. But uh, I, I, want, I want you to recognize it goes fast. I mean, like, it's not, oh, and this happened in, you know, and then there's a whole parable and a story. No, no, no. This is what happens. Thank you very much. Off we go. Um, Thank you. Go ahead, Larry. Did you say a while ago that... Uh... God was not a wrathful God in the Old Testament? I, I would say that we have taught God that way, but I personally would not see God as wrathful in the Hebrew Bible. What about Sodom and Gomorrah, the city? Yeah, so Sod Sodom and Gomorrah itself is a conversation that has to be its own Bible study. Part, part of what happens there is they broke Torah in not extending hospitality. Well, they, wouldn't, couldn't you take that as God exuded his wrath on the city? Yes, and that is, and that's where the conversation gets broader. Okay, then also uh, God destroyed to uh, send his wrath on the world with the flood. Yeah, with Noah, and then... Then you there, got the there, there, there's lots of examples where God exuded his, his wrath on the on, on mankind, right? Yes. But the but the problem with it, and the, and the thing I'm trying to be very careful what I'm saying is, but God is not only wrathful in the Hebrew Bible. The church for a very long time said. The Old Testament is old because it shows a wrathful God. In the New Testament, that the God is nice, basically. So the Hebrew Bible is God is a mean person, and the New Testament is a good one. Uh, that's why we don't have to read the Old Testament. People used to say, and that's and that's why I'm being careful, Larry. It's it's a uh, I'm trying to be very careful to say God has moments of wrath, but God itself is not. Fully wrathful, if that makes sense. The Jews argue that God is not wrathful to them. They get themselves in trouble. He gets them out of trouble. But I mean, because because it gets messy as to who those people are in those towns. Yes. Back to Noah, he gets everybody except for there's not a Jewish group or a chosen people. Right. There's not a nation yet. So so part of what 
part of the struggle is, is when we get to Exodus, is, is that the, the, the wrath that we're experiencing here is discipline. When we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's against our enemies. Does that, so that's, I guess that's what, I mean, it's, it's not Israel. Right. No one exists outside of Israel or the chosen people or. For the people that are hearing this, yeah. that's right. So God doesn't exist to any of those people. So they would argue that God's not wrathful because he. Protects them all the time. But before we start reading, I did, why didn't they leave? Why didn't they leave? When things, yeah, when things were good, they had everything. I, I know. I, I think part of the problem with the story is, is that when, when they begin Exodus and all of these horrific things start happening, is it's a story writing technique. I mean, I whether it be Talmud or reading, I know how they got to where they're at. They just had plenty of chances to leave before then. Yep. And everybody would just say, Thanks. We glad you came by. We're all better off for you being here. See you. Mm -hmm. But who leaves when things are going well? Who Good leaves question. when things are a problem? Things but, are going well. You just sit back and enjoy it. But it's not their land. It, they're not concerned about that. They're having a good time. They have plenty to eat. I don't understand like that, that but maybe that's a whole story. You just answered your question. So part of the problem with this is, is that they they they're comfortable with the stuff that they have. They're complacent. They're complacent. Yep. God is has given them all to them, but in their minds, eh, it's all ours. Look what Joseph did. That's right. Look what <laughs> Joseph did. There you go. And, and now and look what we've done because of what uh -huh. he did. That's right. And then to back to Larry's question, and then then it's not wrath in this moment, but I've heard it preached as wrath. All these bad things happen to them because of their complacency. Well, bad things happen to good people all day long because of other people. And all the plagues, the plagues are against everybody, right? I mean, yes, not just the not just the Egyptians. It's everybody. Everybody's suffering because of them. That's right. And only the last one they're aware of. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that gets them out of trouble so yes I mean, this is large if they don't mark their houses then they die just like everybody else does that's exactly right sorry i just no it's a good question all of these are good questions all right are you ready ready okay here we go next is chapter one these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Ephtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70. Joseph being already in Egypt, Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation but the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly so that the land was filled with them. 
a new king arose in Egypt over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. Uh, this is a conversation that translations are hard there. Um, because when you say rise from the ground, what is it that we say that we come from? Dust to dust. From dust to dust. So this is what that means. So they're coming from the ground that they were created from. Is the idea. So they sent the taskmasters, oh, masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built garrison cities uh, for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramesses. Those are the names of the cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform ruthlessly. They made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other named Puha, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let these boys live, so that the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous, because the midwife can come to them. They have, uh, they have given birth. Before the midwife can come to them. They oh, and before birth. the midwife can come to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh charged all of his people, saying that every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So, uh, like I said, it was really fast. Um, right off the bat, this is the beginning. Um, we're happy, we're prolific. Notice the promise is still there. We continue to increase. We're becoming more like the grains of the sand. That's right. We're definitely becoming more like the grains of the sand. There's this idea that's happening, and even without everybody else knowing what to do with them. Uh, so then they get forced into slavery, but they continue to grow. Uh, there's some really interesting anthropological things that are pointed out here that uh, I just kind of got to point out real quick that. Um, when, when they gave birth, they did it from a squatting position, not a laying down position. Um, they, that's kind of a cool thing to point out. Um, the midwives, the translation here is a little wonky because if you look at it in Hebrew, it's like the Hebrew midwives, like they were Hebrew and midwives that worked for Pharaoh. And then sometimes it's translated as uh, midwives of Hebrews. So like they, they were hired by uh, Pharaoh to, to take care of the Hebrew women. Um, it doesn't say they were working for Egypt. It just says he told them this. Well, I'm saying like in the, in the Hebrew translation, it can be translated both ways. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like in your text, it's going to say uh, that they were just doing this stuff. Right. But in the Hebrew text, it's a little funky. Oh, okay. And there's a little bit of a weirdness 
when we go from Hebrew to Greek uh, to the Septuagint, that's where that really weird okay. translation happens. And so uh, if, if they're Hebrew women, we don't know, but we definitely know that they're midwives. And so the, the funny part, it's supposed to be a joke, right? The Hebrew women are so vigorous and strong that they can, they, they have babies before we even get to their house. You know, like that's supposed to be a joke for them. Uh, and, and, and they would all go, yeah, that's right, you know. Uh, so there's a there's an interesting thing that takes place. And then uh, he says that every boy that is born, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, in the movies, which you see, uh, even with like Charlton Heston and even in, in these things, there's like alligators in the Nile and they're three feeding the babies and the Prince of Egypt, it's hieroglyphs and all this stuff. So like, uh, but did that in, was that in that story? No, no, right? That's Talmud. So a lot of the stories that we get about them throwing them to the alligators or the crocodiles, uh, that, that's, that's coming from Talmud and other texts, uh, but it's not in the primeval text. I'm just throwing them in the water is not bad enough. Right, but you gotta have, you gotta have something to eat them. Are, are the two names... The ladies' names are they Hebrew names? I mean, uh, hang on, <laughs> I have to think about that for a bit. Yes, Shimra and Shiva or whatever. Yes, Shimra. Shimra. I, I mean, I was just curious, and not that they, we've seen them give them different names. Maybe they can't spell the Egyptian names, so. Well, Egyptians and they give them. I think they're I think they're Hebrew. Um, but the reason I'm pausing is is because I had to write a paper on Puha. <laughs> that is versus that that's verse 15, 15 right? It says the Egypt, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was yeah. Well, the discussion just was didn't know if they were. Hebrew or just hired, you know, in translations, but throwing in the names again, not that they don't rename people, but uh, I don't know how to spell Sarah Sullivan. I don't know how to spell this one. <laughs> they could draw the, the bird with a feather sticking out of it. So they had to write it in language that they didn't have to. I guess they had to have some written. They had a document. They made so, pillars and put the king's battles on them. So, well, I'm talking about the Hebrews, though. So. Oh, no, nah, I don't. I don't know what they did. Told stories. That's all. Well, they had the title to the land that they went back and got. Yeah, so. I don't know if that's true or not either. <laughs> yeah, so the the name Puah written deeds. The the Puah literally is in Hebrew just the word midwife. Oh, okay. And Shifra is an Egyptian word for the same thing. Huh. So, they're, so their, their names are literally telling their occupation. I had to remember that because uh, we had a, a doula in our class and she wanted to do a paper on that and we all had to research it. So a doula is like a midwife. So okay. so Pua is literally the name midwife, uh, midwife. And the Hebrew culture absolutely did this stuff. They would name, based, uh, like, like I said, Moses literally uh, is an Egyptian name. Um, I'm going to get to that point where I haven't got there yet. But uh, Moshe's name becomes important. Pua and Shifra, they, 
It's just a it's just a writer technique at this point. I was going to say we see them as names, and there's much of a description of what they do. Right. Which that's literally it. I mean, that continues forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. You know, names are associated with occupations or towns or. It's how they got last names in the whatever hundreds they did. 14, 15, I don't know. Yep. So, so it kind of reminds me of Ellis Island when people had come over and they didn't couldn't speak the language barrier. And you said, you know, what you did, that. and they wrote down what you did. So you were Bob Sheets. Okay, evidently I must have made sheets or something. Yeah. You know. Well, that's why you have so many Smiths. <laughs> yeah. Blacksmith, yeah. Carpentry Smith. Uh, it just, that's why you have a lot of Smiths. For real. Like, I mean, that's that's the, the biggest part here. Um, but in the Hebrew world, it's first name, not the second. Well, one thing they didn't have second names. They did well, mention here names. that I hadn't thought of, and you said it earlier. I always think of all the pharaohs as being related. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they said, well, they didn't know them. And not to take too much from the Talmud, but in a hundred years, they may have been. This pharaoh over here went out. And Killed all the other pharaohs. I mean, because they're, it's more of what, what do you call the surf or the little bitty towns, the serfdoms. I mean, yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of pharaohs. There's a lot of pharaohs at the same time, and they're not always over the entire area. It could have been just the area they were in. So it would be easy for a guy from Cush to come up and be pharaoh at the time and know absolutely nothing. Yeah. That's absolutely 100 percent right. Everybody else. And we don't know how many hundreds of years went by. Yeah. Right. Before this, anyway. So the focus then becomes we lived happy. Somebody didn't were were jealous of us, <laughs> of the people that are talking, not me, but the people that are talking. Then they enslaved us. And then as they enslaved us, we continued to grow. Uh, which they had to take drastic measures and they still still failed. That's that becomes the impetus of chapter one. Well, it sounded to me they were they were uh, so many more people were being born that they were afraid they were going to take over yeah. the country. Or they yeah. or they joined with their enemies if some other mm -hmm. group came and wanted to fight with them. And even when they were Told them to get rid of some of those babies. It's they're still having more and more and more babies. <laughs> Which again goes back to the idea that I will now make you a nation that people will bow down to. You know, this is a this is a big deal. And I love how Exodus does it. They did it all in one chapter. <laughs> it's because they had animals, not not soil. That's right, they didn't they, they the knew they knew how to get more babies. That's right. All about husbandry. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's they did for the first pharaoh. So uh, the uh, chapter two, when we get to it next week, we'll pick up right here, uh, and then we're going to get to his story fairly quickly. Uh, we're going to get introduced to his sister, his parents that are not named. Uh, that's on purpose, uh, which we'll talk about next week. And um, we'll just continue on from there. Any questions from those online before we close?
Okay. Um, I'm going to stop the recording.